Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. As we count down with bated breath, and it has to be said, crossed fingers to this year's International Film Festival, it's interesting to look back to life before there was any such thing. Fifty years ago, before New Zealand's first film festivals in Wellington and Auckland, moviegoing was rather a different experience. For a start, it was almost entirely an English-speaking one. 99% of the films on offer came from Hollywood or London. It was also resolutely mainstream. Art house movies back then often meant films like Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Good morning, Doctor. Morning. Get your clothes off. I'll be with you in a minute. I don't think that'll be necessary. Thank you, Doctor. I'm awfully sorry. I was expecting you, Matron. Obviously. 1972 wasn't all carry-on films and disaster movies, of course. It was also the year of The Godfather, Deliverance and Cabaret. But here in New Zealand, there was very little sign of the European riches of Truffaut and Vim Vendors, Bunuel and Roma, until Lindsay Shelton created the first Wellington Film Festival, later to become the New Zealand Festival we know today. Le vilain garçon, le revolver, Le gentil monsieur, la méchante femme. Scénario de François Truffaut. Later in the show, Lindsay talks about life before and after New Zealand opened its door to world cinema, and along the way, kick-started our own industry. Also, two rather less challenging movies. Susan Sarandon gives her son a to-do list from Beyond the Grave in Ride the Eagle. And first, Liam Neeson extends his very particular set of skills to include driving a big rig across melting ice in The Ice Road. Give me that pistol. Dirty. You gotta take the wheel. Come on, you can do it. Now, generally, I try and avoid reading any reports of a movie before going in, but the general reaction to the ice road was pretty hard to miss. Not very impressive, pretty much sums it up. But at first, I couldn't see what the problem was. The opening was certainly arresting enough. What the hell was that? The ice road, we're told, is one of the most dangerous journeys on Earth. Way up in the frozen north of Canada, the only way to get equipment where it's needed is over frozen solid lakes. At least, you hope they're frozen solid. So all a movie called The Ice Road has to do, you'd think, is dramatise where it's needed. In this case, it's a cave-in at a diamond mine in Manitoba. You heard about the cave-in? Yeah. I'm putting together a rescue mission. 
We have 26 trapped miners who are running out of air. I need 300 feet of pipe delivered up there in under 30 hours. Can you make it happen? The good news is there's a huge gizmo you can use to rescue the trapped miners. The bad news is it needs to be hauled, you've guessed it, along the ice road. Unfortunately, all the reliable drivers are busy elsewhere, so the only ones available to trucking boss Lawrence Fishburne are colourful renegades like Mike, Liam Neeson and his autistic brother Gertie. Says you had experience on the ice road. Yep. He's the mechanic. One of the best. Sweet Jesus. The third truck is allocated to a woman, First Nation trucker Tantu, who actually has to be sprung from jail before she can take the wheel. Tantu is played by an actress with my favourite name this week, Amber Midthunder. Give me 50 bucks. One of my drivers just became available. What's it for? Bail. What? Told you this wasn't going to be easy. I'm in. As the three trucks head north over the ice road, the prospect of the movie delivering looks good. It is, after all, an Arctic twist on that French suspense classic, Wages of Fear. In that film, you may remember, the trucks are carrying dangerously volatile explosives over rocky terrain. Here, it's the road itself providing the danger. Mount up! The only way up there is crossing the ice roads. That leak has been falling for five weeks now. The ice in the ice road has worn perilously thin thanks to global warming, and the truck's heavy loads will be lucky to survive at all, let alone get there in time. So, dangerous enough, surely, but the producers disagree. If they are able to accomplish this, we will be exposed. So the question is time. We've been sabotaged. What, they wonder if, in addition, the trucks have also been booby-trapped by bad guys. This seems to be adding more plot than you need. We've already got a ticking clock down in the mine with Tantu's brother Cody trying to keep everyone frosty, so to speak. My brother is in that mine. This is personal. Now I'm angry. What the hell was that? And it's patently clear that of the three gigantic trucks rumbling to their rescue, not all of them are going to make it over the fast-cracking ice. I mean, in some of the most inhospitable territory on the planet, do we also need villainous saboteurs, hitmen on snowmobiles and endless polar punch-ups? Spreading out. That's going to keep cracking for two, maybe three thousand metres. We're going to have to run tight together. Go! Okay, the stunt work on the ice road is pretty spectacular, and if you're unfamiliar with how to operate big rigs in a blizzard, there are a few surprises. Did you know how to ride a truck that's capsized on the ice, for instance? Me neither. Coming loose, you're all going in. There's no time. But long before the end, you start to suspect the enthusiastic stunt crew has taken over the shoot, and the rest of the production are too cold to argue. Do you want to see another thing a truck can do in the snow? Sure, go ahead, whatever. In the end, the ice road starts to turn into a road to nowhere, I'm afraid. We're coming. Just hang on. 
Ride the Eagle is a film written and directed by two alumni from a sweet little American sitcom called New Girl, writer and star Jake Johnson and director Trent O'Donnell. And like that show, it seems rather poor taste to be unkind to it. Hi, Leaf. Look at me talking to you even though I'm dead. That's trippy, right? Well, I'm still here spiritually. I'm right behind you. I got you. I got you. I know. Yeah, I did. I did like Jake Johnson well enough before I bailed from New Girl, suffering from an overdose of niceness. In Ride the Eagle, he plays a not dissimilar role. Leaf is an underachieving bloke who plays bongos in a part-time band. One day, he gets bad news. His long-estranged mother, Honey, has recently died, leaving a lot of instructions for him. I hereby leave my cabin to my son, provided he completes this list of tasks left for him at the cabin. Do you want a gun? No, should I? No, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. (laughs) Back when Leaf was a child, Honey ran off to find herself in one of those communes that were big in the 90s. This is her attempt to make up for lost time and parenting from beyond the veil. I know. I wasn't the mother you wish I'd been. I did not teach you enough stuff. So I made this list of lessons I learned to be most important on this planet. Number one, be the predator, not the prey. Inevitably, Honey is played, mostly on videotape, by Susan Sarandon, who seems to have been doing ageing hippies for most of her career. Anyway, Leaf is summoned to Honey's cabin in California's Yosemite Valley and starts to work his way through the list of tasks, stroke, valuable life lessons. Sometimes life is messy. It doesn't go as you plan, but it's not over. I'm too stoned for this. Now, your reaction to this plotline may depend on your attitude to rebellious hippies and their pot-smoking, free-loving ways. In the last couple of years, there has been a noticeable shift in that particular demographic. She had cancer, found it too late, and didn't get any treatment. No chemo, nothing. You know your mom with doctors and stuff. It just wasn't her thing. COVID alone has taken the shine off people who pride themselves in sneering at conventional medicine, for instance. And these days, maverick independent thinkers are rather less appealing and more violent than they were back in the innocent days of Woodstock. Your next task, call the one who got away and say you're sorry. Hey, Audrey, it's Leaf. I'm sorry, is that a name or a word? But Ride the Eagle manages to escape the QAnon curse with a small, attractive cast. Under orders from his late mother, Leaf makes a phone call to a long-time ex-girlfriend, Audrey, Darcy Carden, the multifaceted Janet, and another TV favourite, The Good Place. We dated for three years. Why don't you give me your phone number, and then if I can remember who you are, I'll just give you a call back. It's four. You're so dumb, Leaf. Oh, buddy. Darcy adds some appealing spikiness to a character that could have easily slipped into the dreaded pixie dream girl, so beloved in films like Ride the Eagle. And when J.K. Simmons arrives on the scene too, it's hard not to warm towards Ride the Eagle, slightly more than it deserves, perhaps. Who are you, man? Your mom and I were lovers. I'm going to miss you, sweet girl. Your mind, your sense of humour... Your taste in the morning.
Still, a good cast can cover a multitude of sins, and if you buy into it, which I pretty much did despite myself, you'll find it easy to go along on Leaf's journey. But it's undeniably an old-fashioned hippie dream, from the jars of weeds stashed in every cupboard in the cabin to its gorgeous vistas of mountains, rivers and lakes, like a Jackson Brown album cover brought to life. I want for you to experience the best of this life. Will you come up here? And feel everything along the way. My biggest regret is that we didn't spend any time together. Maybe the storyline clunks a little at times, but it always writes itself, particularly when Jake Johnson and Darcy Carden are on the screen. Yes, Honey herself can be a little annoying, but it's part of the film's charm that it's aware. Some of the funniest moments in the film are Leaf cringing at his mother's excesses. I'll tell you a lot of stories about her. She had quite an appetite. She was a very, very sexual animal, and that's probably not what her son wants to hear, I guess. A to-do list written by someone else can easily build up a certain amount of resentment. But Honey manages to win Leaf over, and by implication us, even when the advice seems occasionally goofy, maybe because of that. Like the title, Ride the Eagle, sometimes it's enough that its heart is in the right place, even if it doesn't always make literal sense. Are you lingering? Don't linger. Stop the tape, please. I've tried so okay, hard to get okay, this all shut together. Up. Please. The International Film Festival has been such an integral part of the New Zealand movie scene for so long that it's all but impossible to imagine life without it. But 50 years ago, movies meant just mainstream titles from Hollywood and the UK. Foreign language films were few and far between. New Zealand films were non-existent. It looked like it was going to stay that way for the next 50 years unless something drastic happened. And as we all know, it did. Lindsay Shelton was the first director of the first Wellington Film Festival half a century ago, and he joins me now. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? (laughs) Half a century ago? Indeed, I'm good. (laughs) You've got to let us know what the movie scene was like in New Zealand back in 1972. Was it as grim as I've painted it? No, it wasn't that grim because Wellington had eight or ten big cinemas, so there was a big choice of films. But all these cinemas and all this choice were all from either Hollywood or secondly from England. That was it. Did any so-called art films make it to our screens, meaning anything from Europe or anywhere that wasn't Hollywood or the UK? I think the Bergman films all came in, but uh, they showed in cinemas that were looked at as fairly sleazy because the diet of cinemas like those that showed Bergman were mainly softcore sex films that the Mm. British were churning out in those days. I'd become president of the Wellington Film Society in 1970, and I'd taken my young family on a trip to England, and I discovered, to my amazement, uh, that the cinemas in London were showing dozens of titles from all over Europe, which were never coming into New Zealand and never even been heard of in New Zealand. So when I came back from London, I was programming the Film Society movement And I managed to get the rights to some of these films that were new titles in London. But I came up against a problem. If you're thinking back to those days, pre-video, there were no video shops, there were no video systems. Um, 35 millimeter was the format in all the cinemas. And the film society showed 16 millimeter. The Wellington Film Society had been showing 16 millimeter films in the little library lecture hall for about 30 odd years. And in programming film societies, I came up against the problem that many titles I wanted to bring to New Zealand were not available on 16mm. 
they were only available on the 35 mil. And that led me to try to work out how to show 35 mil. And that led me to this, the discovery of film festivals, in particular Sydney Film Festival, which had been going very successfully under David Stratton's regime for quite a while. You went to Australia yeah. then to, to find out how to do film festivals, really, didn't you? That's true. And David couldn't have been more helpful. He said, look, I've got these prints here. If you like, you can have them in Wellington after Sydney. I said, oh. <laughs> so I came back and talked to the Wellington Film Society Committee, who didn't take too much persuading. And in 1972, we were off and running. But the other question, of course, was where would be our venue? And I went to the owners of the two chains who had the big cinemas in Wellington, Kerridge Odeon on one side of the street, Amalgamated Theatres on the other side of the street. And both of those companies said, no way, we're not having a film festival. Nobody wants to see these films. So I discovered down in Courtney Place, Merv and Carol Kisby running the independent, slightly sleazy Paramount Cinema. <laughs> they were willing to give us a go. Um, and thanks to Merv and Carol, the Wellington Film Society launched itself in 1972. Now, we say the Wellington Film Festival, but, I mean, we're not talking about hundreds of titles here, are we? How many films were included in that first festival in 1972? The first Wellington Film Festival show ran for seven days, had one film per day. But the films we had, these were films which were not going to be even brought into New Zealand if we hadn't taken the move ourselves. Louis Benwell, Louis Mal, uh, Ponticovo, Big name directors. And after seven days, we'd sold 5,000 tickets. So we thought to ourselves, Goodness. Ah, the, the big chains were wrong. There is an audience <laughs> for these films after all. It was a great time for film production in Europe. There was the new wave. There were all sorts of directors who were becoming very fashionable. From Germany, for example, there was Herzog and Benders and Fassbinder, all of whose films we showed. There were great French directors of the time, like Truffaut and Chabrol and Louis Malle, Alain René. It's, it's amazing to think back to the 70s because the cinemas in New Zealand would not show these films. So audiences who didn't know any better were thinking the entirety of the international film business comes from either the United States or England. They knew right. nothing about uh, Europe or Asia, and we set out to change their awareness, and we did it. Well, the fact is, of course, that a lot of people, I think, would have been reading about a lot of these films from overseas magazines, from, you know, I mean, people were big readers in New Zealand and they knew about them. They just weren't allowed to see them. Remember, there were two monthly film magazines that came from England. One was called Sight and Sound and was very um, respectable. The other was called Films and Filming, and it managed to have some kind of sexy content on the cover <laughs> of every issue. But they, they were both serious film magazines, which told New Zealanders what they were missing. And we were able to um, build on that distant awareness. But the growth of the film festival was quite amazing because after five years, um, we'd grown from 5,000 tickets to 20,000 tickets and from seven films to 30 films. And that was just the first five years. I have to say also that Auckland had its own film festival and that had been going for about three years by the time you guys started. I mean, how much interaction was there between the two festivals? Uh, Bill Gosden, uh, the late Bill Gosden, there's a new book um, of his coming out, um, hopefully by Christmas, and he, run, he writes wonderfully acerbically that the Auckland Film Festival existed to raise money for the Auckland Festival Society so it could run garden programs. Uh, we tried in Wellington to get <laughs> Auckland to share selection of features so that we could halve the costs, we could split the costs, but they were very reluctant to do that. And I'm jumping ahead a bit, but... Uh, in the 80s, Bill and I went to Auckland and very indiscreetly did a takeover of the Auckland Film Festival. And, and that was the start of the growth of Wellington, uh, which then set out under Bill Gosden's leadership to become 
uh, the New Zealand International Film Festival. But of course, b- before I get off the track completely, the other major element running alongside the growth of the film festival was the campaign to get a New Zealand film industry going. Right through the 70s, people were campaigning, led, of course, by the great John O'Shea. And once I had got the Wellington Film Festival going, I looked around for New Zealand films to include and discovered, <laughs> I should have known, there weren't any. There were no films being made in New Zealand at all, apart from the National Film Unit. In 1974, I found the first film that I could select in the program, which was a film about Ralph Hotary, made by Sam Pillsbury. And then in 75, I got the first New Zealand feature, a film called Test Pictures, made by Jeff Stephen, who'd made it with a little cooperative, but he'd run out of money. He'd finished the film, but didn't have enough money to pay for a print. And so the Wellington Film Festival very generously and very nervously advanced in the money to pay for a print so he could screen it. And you're not talking about millions here, are you? How much did you actually give him to finish the film? (laughs) I can't remember what it was. might have been a couple of thousand dollars. The Film Society Committee was very nervous. The Wellington Film Festival went on, however, to be the place where many of the great New Zealand films had their world premieres. Uh, l- looking back through the programs, uh, Meritamitis Patu, for example, had its mm. world premiere in Wellington, um, Barry Barclay's marvellous Nati, John Reed's Liebel Fair, and Peter Jackson's career was launched at the Wellington Film Festival, where Bill Gosden very bravely chose Bad Taste for a late-night screening. Going a bit earlier than that, though, Lindsay, there was another film that had a couple more things going for it than would appear at first glance. This is a film called Landfall, and uh, it's, it featured two major New Zealand film figures in the cast, yeah. a very young Sam Neill and, uh, yeah. and Jonathan Dennis, who ended up being a very influential person in the film industry. Jonathan was not only the first director of of the founder of the New Zealand Film Archive, but he was a major contributor to film festival programming over the years. And he would always sit in the front row of the festival screenings and he'd always wear a very bright scarf wrapped around his neck. So (laughs) he was a personality, was Jonathan. And he he also, he was my predecessor on this show, as it turns out. How was the Mm. festival funded? I mean, did you get any public funding for the Wellington Film Festival? None at all. Right from the start, the Wellington Film Festival has been a film festival which depended on its earnings from the audience. Right from the start, the Wellington Film Festival has set out to provide an event which the local audience would find appealing. And I think right now when the festival has grown so enormously, I think it's still, what's the figure, about 85 or 90% dependent on ticket sales, the level of subsidy from different organizations is only about 10%, which makes it very different from most of the big film festivals of similar size around the world, which I think get 50 or 60% in terms of of cultural subsidy. But here, we're a bit different in New Zealand. That is amazing, isn't it? When you consider that one of the defining characteristics of the film festival is that they're not specifically commercially geared up movies. These are movies that are important and interesting in theory rather than commercial, and yet they're hugely popular. The festival is such um, an important part of the New Zealand film scene now. Yeah, and by developing the tastes of um, film-going audiences in New Zealand, the Wellington Film Festival contributed to the eventual emergence of what we call arthouse cinemas, and those arthouse cinemas were able to give a longer run to some of the more popular films every year uh, from the film festival, so we helped with that. But while while I'm talking venues, I should talk one other aspect of the Wellington Film Festival's growth, because I told you it had grown from 5,000 tickets to 20,000 tickets in 1976, And when um, Bill Gosden took it over in 19, 
81, we were selling about 60,000 tickets. Well, to my great amazement, in 1985, Bill Gosden announced that it had outgrown the Paramount as its home and it was going to move down the road to the much bigger Embassy Theatre. And then the growth continued and the festival became a two-venue place, the Embassy and the Paramount. And of course, as everybody knows now, it, it's an event that takes place in five or six or seven different screens. So the growth of it has been enormous. But while I wrap it on about venues, of course, the success of the Wellington Film Festival encouraged a group of people to buy the building to save it from demolition and then to raise the money to start restoring it, making it now the glorious cinema-going venue that it is today. When you started the idea of the festival, then, Sammy, did you have any idea that it was going to be anything other than a minority-taste event? No, I was just getting to bring in the films that I wanted to see and that I thought other people would want to see. But also I I had no idea that it might turn into a a self-supporting organisation. When the festival started growing, we were able to employ one administrator and she spent much of her year running film societies but a small part of her year running the film festival but now of course the film festival from its own ticket sales mainly is able to employ three or four people around the year and to take on a whole lot of extra professionals to make all aspects of the event happen in a very attractive way and talking about events happening We're all crossing our fingers and toes that the film festival will be going ahead as scheduled in November. I have to ask, I mean, what was more important to you, Lindsay, the idea of opening New Zealand audiences up to more challenging fare or kick-starting the New Zealand film industry, which it also did? One thing led to the other. When they started the film commission at the end of the 70s, they looked around for someone who had professional experience in film marketing and promotion, and I was enthusiastically able to put my hand up and say, well, look, I've, I've been marketing other people's films right through the 70s. I would really like the chance to do the same thing for New Zealand films. That got me the job, which led to a pretty tremendous 20 years um, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, so the film festival is so substantially established that in spite of all the new techniques from video to DVD to streaming as it is now, but there is still an absolute enthusiasm for filmgoers to gather in a beautiful big cinema and sit with 600 like-minded people and share the experience of seeing a film on a big screen. So regardless of all the new technologies, the basic experience of going to the cinema and seeing a movie, I'm sure will continue. That's the founder of the Wellington Film Festival, later the New Zealand International Film Festival, Lindsay Shelton, who went on to be the first marketing director of the New Zealand Film Commission for 20 years. And that brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.